Good morning. My name is Jim Grossman, and I serve here as pastoral intern. I'm about a third of the way through my nine-month internship, and it's been going great. So I just wanted to thank God and all of you for that as well. Uh, today we're picking up back in Mark where we left off last time before Advent, and next week I'll be preaching there as well. Uh, the passage before us today is Mark 6, 14 to 29, page 711 in the Church Bibles. If you would turn there with me, let's read the word of the Lord together and then ask God for his help in understanding it. Mark 6, verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Then finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the room, hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Father God, we pray and ask that you would give us help in understanding the story that is here before us today as we look and ask what is this about and why should it matter to us. I ask that you would give us clarity of mind and make our hearts sincere and pure in intention as we listen and make decisions and as we look at this story and as we look at our lives. In your name, amen. The opening line to the movie The Patriot starts with a close-up on a chest that a tomahawk and gunpowder horn are placed into. And in a shaky voice, the main character says, I've long feared that the sins of my past would come back to haunt me, and the cost is more than I can bear. And then the chest closes, and it fades out to a black screen. And then the story picks up, and the regular music starts, and your attention is drawn from that scene into the next. Here in Mark, we have the same thing. We have the scene of Jesus 
going from place to place, preaching and performing miracles, next to 12 going out and doing the same, and the scene fades to black, and our attention is drawn elsewhere. Here in Mark, this section of text, verse 14 to 29, as part of the narrative of the, the book, this seems like an aside. And you kind of wonder why this story is here, why the break in the narrative plot for this side plot. I suggest to you that this story is here to illustrate the human condition. And what is the human condition? Well, in part, it's pride, it's lust, conflict between a husband and wife, it's authority issues, superstition, and this story shows a snapshot, a display of the basic human condition when we are told the truth that we do not want to hear. And so here we are at this apparent side story about Herod, John the Baptist, Herodias, and her daughter Salome, faded away from the scene of the twelve going out before it picks back up, and we will study that next week. But this story, verse 14, looking at it in your Bibles, how does it start? And what does it have to tell us about us? Well, it starts with Jesus having become well-known, and King Herod heard about this. Jesus' name was well-known because of his messages and miracles. No one could do what Jesus was doing, and no one taught as Jesus taught. His miracles, yes, were part of the draw, but the crowds who gathered around to listen, they stayed and listened to what he had to preach. The ones who stayed and listened to him on the hills and in the countryside didn't show up for the miracle show and then leave. They wanted to hear what he had to say. He was preaching that people should repent and turn to God. We know this from... Mark 1 to Mark 5, and it hasn't changed. It's been his constant message. And all Herod had to do was to listen to this same message of Jesus from John and turn to God in repentance. That's all any of us have to do. And the pride and lust that Herod had, as bad as sins as they were, they were not so bad that God could not forgive him. Pride, lust, they're terrible enough, but not irredeemable. They're big, but not in terms of the gospel. To someone struggling with pornography, to him and his wife, it's huge. It's, It's a big issue, but not in terms of the gospel. You see, the distance between repentance and forgiveness is not this big. It's not repent and make penances, and then when you've paid enough for your sin, then you're forgiven. No, it's you repent, and you ask Jesus for forgiveness, and the distance between your sin and being forgiven is like that. It's immediate. And that's all Herod had to do. It's the one thing that Herod had to do was to turn to Jesus, and he couldn't do it. He wouldn't admit his sin. Herod never bowed down, not to anyone. He was Herod. There's some helpful things to know historically about Herod before we start. His father, from the Matthew chapter 2 account surrounding Jesus' birth, was known as Herod the Great. He was the one who put all the male babies under two years old to death. The Herod here in chapter 6 is his son Herod Antipas. At the end of chapter 2 in Matthew, after Herod the Great died, his son Archelaus took up ruling over Judea. You can read that at the end of Matthew chapter 2. And Herod the Great, that Herod, had four sons. Archelaus, Herod Antipas, Philip, and the last one, Aristobulus, whose daughter was Herodias. That's the same Herodias in the story. So Herodias was Herod's niece, who was married to his brother Philip. Historians tell us that Herod first had to divorce his wife to marry Herodias, and she had to divorce Philip 
so that she could marry Herod. And we see that in the Bible there in verse 17, that Herod has married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And this is a snapshot of the heart of man. Fast forward a thousand years or rewind a thousand years and you see this played out all over the place. I mean, it's like a bad story out of a magazine. Go to the store and in the checkout aisles and, and just read about the rich and famous. He's with who now? Kim said what? Oh, they aren't married anymore? He's married to her sister now? It's, it's a convoluted mess. And it keeps replaying because men and women are always driven by the same sinful desires. You can read about it in the magazines. You can read about it on Facebook. And though the average person doesn't make headlines in their situation, it still happens. But this story is like 10 levels of messed up. He's with her, she's with him, their brother and sister-in-law, and she's his niece, and they were all plotting to kill each other. Studying the Herods for just an hour will make your head swirl. It's uh, like an episode of Game of Thrones or something. Sex, betrayal, pride, and everyone's trying to kill everyone. So anyway, Herod and Herodias, this divorce and remarriage they had was not lawful under Jewish law. You can find that in Leviticus 18 and 20. And John the Baptist, verse 18, had been saying this to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, who, by the way, is also your niece. Verse 19, because John said this, Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. In fact, back up in verse 17, that is why John was in prison. Verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, and if you're tracking with that, you'll see that Herod is in an adulterous and incestuous relationship with his wife. Now, Herod himself was conflicted about John. Verse 20, he feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. He gladly listened to John, but in Matthew, it says that Herod wanted to kill John. So he was conflicted about John the Baptist. He likes him, he fears him, and he protects him, but he throws him in prison because he chose to listen to his wife instead of John. And on some level, this is a picture of every human relationship. Now, probably not to this extreme, but the people that you love and enjoy, at some point, you might be so mad you'd say to them, I could just about kill you. And you feel it and mean it in that moment. And you can feel like they're going to drive you insane. It's so very human. We like, we fear, we protect, and we hate. And this is the human condition, whether we like it or not. And so this is Herod. He's a man that's driven by lust and pride. He lusts for his brother's wife, and he takes her as his wife. And he's proud of being king and being able to offer up half the kingdom as a reward, as if it wouldn't even hurt him to do so. And... He's too prideful to own up to his foolish offer and deny the request of John the Baptist's head, whom he had feared and protected, and instead has him executed to save face in front of his high officials, rather than just admitting it was a foolish offer to make. So Herod's lust is so large it gets him in this mess, and his pride is so large that he's willing to take a man's life, a good man's life, a man he knows is purely innocent. And so he's his father's son. When kids aren't raised in a vacuum, what we see around us affects us. And this is a tale of immorality, cruelty, and royalty. The father of Herod, like the son, when they are disturbed, do very cruel and perverted things. The Herod, the great, 
to protect his pride and kingship, was driven to have innocent babies slaughtered. His son Antipas, in his lust and pride, was driven to have an innocent man murdered just to save face and appease his wife. And so you see the misuse of both authority and the good gift of sex is a bad combination together. And this is Herod. Okay, so we have two men, Herod and John. And Herod, even though he's as bad as he is, God still sends him John the Baptist to preach to him. God, it seems, hadn't written Herod off quite yet. John went to preach to Herod and offer him the gospel. We all sin. Everyone has sinned against God, failing to worship him and causing tragic harm, not only to ourselves, but to one another. We don't live in a vacuum, and and what we do affects those around us. Now, in this case, John died because of Herod's sin. He Not for his sin like Jesus, but he was innocent and killed because of someone else's sin. And, and so in this way, he's kind of like Jesus. And for us, knowing who we are without God as sinners, and to know that everyone has sinned against God, and everyone, every time we sin in some way, causes tragic harm to one another, we have to ask what to do. But there is a way out. For Herod, God sent John the Baptist to tell him this. And for us, God sent Jesus to save us. God sent Jesus to show us he's a God of mercy and forgiveness. And this picture of mercy is in this story too, in that God sent John to preach to Herod. And Herod liked to listen to John preach, verse 20. The Greek there can also be translated as, and he heard him gladly. We know from Mark 1.4 that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was preaching repentance. He was preaching the same thing as Jesus. It wasn't John's clothes of camel hair or his leather belt or the fact that he ate locusts and honey and was kind of a wild man that got him thrown in prison. It was his preaching. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, what you're doing is not lawful. That word had been saying The word in Greek is lego, and in the form that it's in here indicates speech in progress. So in other words, as part of the sermon in progress that John had been saying to Herod, he included Herod's sin. When John spoke to Herod, he preached the law, but not only the law. This was part of the sermon, if you would, part of his speech in progress. But make no mistake, John preached the gospel. And this preaching made Herod afraid of John, He feared him and protected him. But the same thing made his wife Herodias very angry, so mad she wanted to kill John. Okay, so you ask, what does this have to do with me? Well, it means that we have to be very careful when we listen to the word of God when it's preached. Or you might, and you might not think you would, but you might respond like either of these two. Now, Other than Jesus, John the Baptist was the greatest preacher of his day. Herod had access to him, full access. He had backstage passes access. Yet when the rubber meets the road, Herod listened to himself and others rather than the voice of God from the man of God preaching the word of God. He preferred to save face rather than repent. I mean, think of what Herod had in John, the greatest preacher of the day, and it didn't make a difference, did it? And you can do the same. You can listen to great preachers. Tell me your favorite ones. List them all off for me. Enjoy listening to them even. And like Herod, 
After listening to them, you can do many good things. And those things in and of themselves, by themselves, just do not matter. And when Herod listened to John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Look at the footnote in verse 20 for greatly puzzled. That phrase in early manuscripts, it says that he did many things, and King James actually translates it that way. So when Herod would hear John preach, he would do many things. He was greatly puzzled about what to do. When he heard the message of John, he ran many places, doing many good things. Now John was a good preacher, and what a good preacher should do is tell you to run to God, to run to Jesus. And when Herod heard the word, he did anything but run to Jesus. He liked to listen, but he was lost. He liked to listen. He heard John gladly. And you might say he would never miss a Sunday, yet he was still lost. 2 Timothy 3.7 says that these type of men are always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. There were men Paul was specifically writing about to Timothy, and the point is that just because there are people who are always trying to learn, it doesn't mean that in itself that it does them good. The reason that they want to learn is what matters. They may have liked to learn, to go to Bible study. Maybe they got a tingle in their spine, or they had more information to use. But if you come to learning that way, your purpose being for yourself, you'll never be able to come to a knowledge of truth. And as an aside, Herod was still in his immorality with his brother's wife when he listened to John. He did many things after hearing John, but he was unrepentant. And that's an aside because that's different from being in immorality, but repentant and fighting against indwelling sin with God's help, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. But that is a different spot from where Herod was. Still, though, we might like to listen. We might like to come to church. And when we hear the word, we might want to do many good things, good works. We may be in immorality and unrepentant, agitated when we hear the truth, but unrepentant. And that's really where Herod was. He was doing many things. Basically, he was trying to fix the externals, maybe even successfully so. So be mindful if you're trying to fix your externals when you're looking at your sin. Herod was a very religious man. He helped the Jews build the temple for 46 years after his father had finished most of the work. He still was working on it. It's easy to repeat the gospel, to toe the line. Yeah, I know I'm a sinner, and I know, and to sit in church every Sunday, and maybe even be... Mr. and Mrs. Busy for Jesus. You know, you may pray, read, study, and be active in the church. A person can, hearing the gospel can run to do many things, many religious deeds at church or specifically outside of the church, or run internally to themselves, to good works, even as sacraments and prayers, maybe in empty promises to ourselves, but that's not the gospel. And one of the signs of this is that there's no sweetness to our service when we are doing that. And when we are this type of person, are we busy for God? Oh, we may be busy for God, but is it really God that we're trying to serve? Really? Or are you trying to quiet your conscience? 
I'll pray, I'll read, I'll study, I'll be active in church and do and say all the right things, but that's not salvation. Those aren't the things of salvation, and, and that is not the gospel. I mean, why do you think Herod was still trying to build the temple years after he had John killed? He was trying to pay for his guilt. And that's not the gospel. We can't approach God based on our performance. And if the problem is I have to get just a little bit better, I have to make just a little bit more penance for my sin, then we're just going to have to keep throwing stuff at it. And if the problem is I need to just get serious and I I can get better, then you'll run anywhere but the cross first. And fast forward to where that will get you. What is the result? You won't get any better. Fast forward to where that will get you, and instead of growing better, like Herod, you'll grow worse. And then the opportune time will come. What happened when the opportune time came? Verse 21. Opportunity met desire and temptation. And you have to know that there will be times when you'll meet an opportunity and it will line up with a wrong desire and you'll be tempted and everything will be lined up for you to fail. And by continuing in life unrepentant like that, you know, just living the dream, doing whatever you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want, isn't going to lead where we think. It may sound like the pursuit of happiness, to just get everything you ever wanted. If I could just get all that, if, if I could just enjoy my time with the people I want to and on my timetable and then sit in bliss and think, ah, life is good and I'm good, I'm doing great. But the moment anything bad happens, it all falls apart and that is what happened to Herod. And even when things are going good, you just can't quite shake that feeling off. You can't stop thinking My sins are going to return to visit me. And so you push that feeling down. And why do you do that? Isaiah 48, 22, because there ain't no rest for the wicked. And this really isn't different for the Christian who has accepted the gospel either. We can know the gospel like Herod did and not accept it. Or we can do the opposite. We can actually accept the gospel and repent but then go and live like it's not true. After a time we sin, and when we do that, instead of living with a distance between the gospel and sin that is like this, we try and find any other remedy that we can other than faith and repentance to try and justify ourselves before God. And if you live, step back from the gospel like that. Like you know the gospel is true, but you know something else to be more true. Whatever is bigger will win. Whatever you let be bigger will win. Basically, whatever you let rule your life, that thing will rule your life. And so here Herod was, left in this situation by the result of his unresolved sins, by listening to the gospel and responding not in repentance. Uh, He was left in this situation because of his lust and pride, and he killed the innocent like his father did. And so I should add that that opportune moment, at that point, someone may be just waiting to catch you. In this case, for Herod, it was his wife. Not to say, aha, gotcha, caught you in your sin, but no, to make it worse, to exploit his weakness, to use this opportunity to get her own evil desire. And so she's a snake, and he's a fox. They really are the archetypal figure for every story that has 
a cautionary tale. And if you're following along in the notes, two women. And so here we are with these two women. As I read history about Herodias and her daughter, it was clear what type of people they were. Herodias, it's clear from the biblical account, was a person who was angry and bitter enough to plot and kill someone after they accused her of doing wrong. It's unclear exactly if when she left Philip it had to do with lust or if it was a power play trying to trade up the more powerful brother. But it is clear that she was manipulative and hanging around just waiting for an opportunity to trap her husband into doing her will. Now her daughter, who isn't named in the Bible, we know from historical record, keeping of Josephus, a Jewish historian, to be Salome. It was also the name of Herod the Great's sister, who is described as being the instigator of all the tragedies that befell Herod. She would spy on Herod the Great's wife, Merimi, and plotted to remove her. This event is also associated with her first marriage to her uncle, a certain Joseph. While inciting Herod the Great, her brother, against his wife, Merimi, she accused her own husband of seducing Merimi. Herod the Great was persuaded, and Joseph her own husband, was executed. This Salome was her mother Herodias's great-aunt. The women of the Herodian dynasty, it seems, to have inherited the qualities of their predecessors in the same way that the men did. Herodias certainly had an affinity for getting her way and manipulating her way there. She may have learned this from watching her other female relatives, but wherever she got it from, she certainly has no problem making her daddy daughter party to her crimes. Now her daughter's dance, most scholars think, was erotic. Now I I don't know for sure. The word dance in in Greek there is pretty generic and it doesn't seem to know what type of dance it was. For For that, the context is perhaps more helpful. A party banquet in front of all the ruling men. A party for the king. This dance pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the type of pleasure received, verse 22, was not something only the king would have enjoyed, but the other men also. The subtext of an oriental royal party here is is suggestive, but maybe not 100% clear. And so I thought, well, maybe that word pleased in Greek, maybe that meant sexual pleasure. The word in Greek is oresko, and there in verse 22, it means to accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. The flavor of it is doing what you know someone desires you to do. And so she may have simply been listening to her mother and had her life in danger for not following. Or she may have been looking herself to please the king. It was her mother who instructed her to do this dance, but at the opportune moment, in order to get something out of the king, that is what is suggestive, that it was a dance to earn something to earn some favor from the king. And this is what Herodias had been waiting for. The context for Herodias was to please Herod, and she knew how to do that uh, so that she could get what she wanted, John the Baptist's head on a platter. It seems kind of strange at this point to give her whatever request she wanted, so I don't know for certain what type of dance this was, but whatever the case may be, Herodias's daughter had no problem running back and forth doing your mother's bidding, and asking for John the Baptist's murder. So we have two men 
two women, and one way. So here we are with these two men and these two women, and they're all entangled in this mess together, and the only innocent party, John, is the one who ends up murdered. Herod, after all of this, verse 16, is sure that this Jesus is John reincarnate, come back to haunt him. This whole passage on, on face value seems a little difficult because the conclusion is at the onset that Herod feels guilty. I know this Jesus. He's not Elijah. He's not some other prophet. That's John. That's the man I beheaded. And then we get the backstory after that, how Herod had feared John and knew he was righteous and holy and he protected him. And then, bam, in one fell swoop at the right time, he was betrayed by his wife and her daughter and he betrayed John and his conscience has declared him guilty. Now, Herod's final result after all this wasn't good. He's a murderer now. And the story about verse Herod, you know, it doesn't, you know, start reading in verse 18, go down, and then after that, in verse 30, Herod is left sad and remorseful and repentant. That's not the way the story reads. And I think that's purposeful. Herod had an opportunity for the gospel with John when he was still alive, and he gladly heard John. But then he had him beheaded. And instead of seeing Jesus and trying to figure out who this Jesus was, he thinks, this must be John back to haunt me. And if we follow the progression of Herod in Mark 12, 13, we see the Pharisees and Herodians, uh, Herod's crew, who normally hated each other. They were teamed up trying to chap Jesus and his words. You may want to turn with me to Luke 23. In Luke 23, when Jesus was arrested and brought before Pilate in Jerusalem, Luke 23, 4-7, then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and now he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Herod was happy to see Jesus, it tells us. He was, he was looking to be pleased, to have a show. He wanted Jesus to perform. It says that for a long time he had been wanting to see him in Luke 23.8 because he hoped to see him perform a miracle of some kind. Now, Jesus' ministry on earth was about three years long. And in Mark 6, he may have been six months into his ministry or a year, maybe more. But by the time another one or two years have passed, Herod isn't afraid of Jesus anymore. Maybe he decided he wasn't John the Baptist raised to life after all. But in any case, in this relatively short period of time, he had been hoping to see Jesus and hoping for a sign. And when he didn't see one, he plied Jesus with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. Finally, Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked Jesus, dressed him in a fancy robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And that's no small thing. Go back up to verse 7, chapter 23. Pilate seems to be happy to find out he wouldn't have to make the decision. What? He's Galilean? Yes. Oh, great. Send him to Herod. Let him take the blame for this man I find no basis for a charge against. I'm Roman. He's Jewish. Pilate was probably pretty happy seeing as how he and Herod were enemies. And he sent Jesus to his enemy, Herod, maybe thinking Herod would take the blame for killing this innocent man. I mean, it happened before with John. 
So when Herod wasn't sure what to do, when Jesus was in front of him and he didn't see a miracle to get any of the proof that he wanted, he plied Jesus with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. Why no answer? Yeah, in the parable of Abraham's bosom where Lazarus the beggar goes when he dies and the rich man who was in torment in Hades sees Lazarus with Abraham, he says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have the Moses they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus didn't answer Herod's questions. Herod already had heard the gospel from John. Herod knew Moses. John preached to him from it. And Herod knew the prophets. Jesus' reply of no to Herod or of no answer is like Abraham's reply of no. Essentially, you can't call all the shots when it comes to your salvation. Herod couldn't just call Jesus to him whenever he wanted. He couldn't ask Jesus questions on his timetable. Mark 6, verse 16, Herod's conscience was still alive. Two to three years later, when Jesus is going to the cross, Herod's conscience is dead. And he mocks Jesus and sends him back to Pilate to be put on the cross. There's no guarantee that your conscience will be alive in the future. There's a reason the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because you can never guarantee that this moment will come again. They hardened their heart in the wilderness and were cut off. Heron hardened his heart and wanted the gospel on his timetable. He wanted the answers to life from Jesus only when he wanted them on his timetable. He had the, only when he had the chance to see him, see a miracle from him, to get the answers to the questions that he wanted. And if you're looking for something from God, looking for a miracle blessing or some kind of a sign, you're looking for some kind of answer, the answer is that we need to repent. Jesus had become well-known, and the people had to decide what to do with him. This Jesus, who do I, th- I think he is? Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? If you were living back then, it might have been easier seeing all this happen to hear about Jesus and try and make a decision. But maybe not. They were asking the same thing we all ask at some point. Who is this Jesus? Who do I think he is? And it all boils down to this. You can really do two things with Jesus. You can label him as something a prophet, a lunatic, a myth, or you can listen to him. You can listen to his message and decide, yes, that's me. I have sinned and I need to repent. I can't fix all of my mess. I can't help myself out of this. I can't live this life on my own. I'll end with this. It's a reflection on Philippians 2, Jesus who being God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, and he took on the nature of a servant, became humble to death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This life can't be lived on our own, and this is the place that we ought to live here at the foot of the cross. If you would bow your head with me, please, and pray as we prepare for communion and those who are serving communion. If you would please come forward at this time. Lord, we pray and thank you for the table that is here before us. Thank you for your body, which is broken for us, and your blood, which is poured out for our sins, that we may find forgiveness in you through faith and repentance. Thank you. Amen.